The Lord be with you. As introduced, I'm Tim Brown, a.k.a. John Brown 1.0, uh, and, and really, really grateful to be here. Um, I was a little disappointed months ago when John asked me to participate in this Acts series because I was assigned Acts 28. That meant I had to wait all summer long which isn't good for you because I'm so pent up with excitement, we are going to be here a very long time. <laughs> um, the book of Acts has played out just about precisely the way that Jesus foretold it. You remember, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And it's gone exactly that way. It begins in Jerusalem with all of the spirit agitation and fomentation and then the huge explosion on Pentecost Day. That's the first seven chapters and it ends, of course, with the stoning of Stephen and the tactical error made by the Romans to uh, disperse all of the Christians out of Jerusalem, which was a bad mistake on their part because that only put them on the road where they would be even more dangerous. That's the first seven chapters. Then in chapter eight, we go to Samaria, largely through the ministry of Philip. Philip meets the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip preaches to a large number of Samarians and they become followers of Jesus. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, beginning with the conversion of the Apostle Paul in chapter 9, and then the ends of the earth where we come to today. The gospel has finally made its way to the seat of world power, Rome itself, and you'll be intrigued to see what happens. With that introduction, pray with me, please. Father, <clears throat> may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus our single concern, in whose name we pray, amen. Listen with me to these words from the book that we love. After we had reached safety, we learned that the island was called Malta. The natives there showed us unusual kindness. It had begun to rain and it was cold and they kindled a fire for us and they welcomed us all around it. Paul was gathering a bundle of brushwood when a viper driven out by the heat fixed itself to his hand. When the natives saw this, they said, this man must be a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has followed him here. But Paul shook the creature into the fire and no harm came to him. The natives watched, expecting him to puff up or to drop dead. But after they had waited a long time and nothing had happened, they changed their minds and they said, this man must be a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island, a man named Publius, who received us and welcomed us and entertained us 
It so happened that his father was sick with fever and dysentery. So Paul went to visit him. He laid hands on him, prayed for him, and cured him. And then word of this spread, and everyone on the island who was diseased or infirmed came to Paul, and he cured them all. They bestowed great honor on us. And when we left, they filled our ship with all the provisions that we needed. Three months later, we set sail on a ship that had wintered on the island. It was an Alexandrian vessel with the twin brothers as its figurehead. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. Then we went on to Rigium. We waited there a day, caught a good wind, and came finally to Putiliae. There we found believers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. The believers from there, when they heard of us, came to us from afar, as far away as the Forum of Apius and the Three Taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier who was guarding him. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews, and he said to them, Brothers, I, have done, I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, yet I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. The Romans examined me and found no reason for me to receive the death penalty, but when the Jews objected, I was forced to, uh, to appeal to the emperor. And for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak to you, since it is for the sake of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, uh, we have received no letters from the brothers in Judea, and none who have been coming here have spoken evil against you, but we would like to hear from you about this sect that we know is everywhere being spoken against. After they had set a day to meet with him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning until evening, he testified, he explained the matter to them and testified to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets. Some were convinced, but others refused to believe. So they disagreed with each other, and as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your ancestors, this people indeed listen, but they never understand. They look, but they never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull and their ears are hard of hearing so that they might not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Let it be known to you then, from this moment on, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there for two years, 
with the guard that had been assigned to him. He welcomed everybody who came, teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Some kind of story, wouldn't you say? It's the gospel making its final advance all the way from Jerusalem to Rome, the seat of world power. Now, <clears throat> I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is this is going to be a one-point sermon. One hard-hitting, one and done, we're up and out of here. That's the good news. The bad news is it's not going to feel that way to you at all. I mean, there are so many interesting things here uh, that we just have to stop and take notice of a few of them before we get to the main event. But I promise I won't take long. And, and here's the first one. The first one is actually a warning. There ought to be a warning label over this entire chapter saying, caution, religion can be hazardous to your health. Isn't it interesting, uh, and I'm sure that Luke intends to show us this, the difference between the, the Jews who are conspiratorial, pinched face, angry, accusatory, and the pagans on the island uh, of Malta who are kind and generous and welcoming. I think it's his way of saying, too much religion can hurt you. You know, it was Billy Sunday. Do you remember this name, Billy Sunday? The great evangelist, the prototypical Billy Graham. He once said that a person be can become a Christian by going to church as likely as you can become a car by sitting in a garage. The religion itself, while necessary, and we do a lot of religious things, isn't the thing itself. Jesus is the thing itself and not all of our practices. Practices come and go and change over time, and they can be a problem if you fixate on the outer form. In fact, I think Jesus said once, didn't he? Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. There's a difference between doing religion and knowing Jesus. That's the warning. And here, here's the second thing that I want to note. And, and that is the, uh, the generous and loving portrayal of Publius. Weren't you taken by his character? Now remember, Publius is on the island of Malta. The gospel has never gotten to Malta, and yet he's living the gospel. The point being that there's a kind of kindness in people. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said something like this, um, Christians ought not to be better than other people ought to be but they ought to be better than other people are. You find a kind of natural goodness and wholesomeness in this character Publius 
who by his very name means every person, which is to say, I think Luke is trying to change our attitude about people who aren't a part of the church. I mean, I spent most of my growing up years until I came to Holland uh, in the home of unbelievers who I thought were absolutely wonderful people. And, and one of the really salutary, happy effects of that experience is realizing there's so much good in so many people. So when we're moving about, though we understand the language of the kingdom of light and the kingdom of dark, we have to remember that the light of Christ actually burns in every person. And our job is to see what God is doing in the life of somebody, even if they're not a part of the church. Well, that's, that's the second preliminary thing that I want. You see how I meant about this could be a long one? <clears throat> but now here's the third one, and I love this. And that is the effect, the salutary, wonderful effect that believers had on the Apostle Paul. It all comes to this one verse. Um, the believers from there, when they heard of us, came as far as the form of Apius and three taverns. I like the detail in this passage. The form of Apius and the three taverns are geographical dots on the map. They're on the uh, road to Rome, and uh, it gives us a kind of historical feel to all of this. When Paul, on seeing the believers, Paul thanked God and took courage. Isn't that wonderful? On seeing the believers, Paul thanked God and took courage. There is something remarkable about the effect of another believer on another one. I'm just remembering years ago, I, was, I gave the Shanglian lectures at the Taipei Theological Seminary in Taipei, Taiwan. I flew into Taiwan, it was very late, and I was dog-tired. I was, would be picked up at the airport by a former student of mine named Abraham Chen. The, the airport was just teeming with people. I was feeling lonely and a little uh, uh, at, ill at ease. And then as I was making my way through the crowd, there was the face of Abraham Chen waving at me. And immediately, though I was thousands of miles from home, I felt right at home. When he saw the other, when he saw them, Paul thanked God and took heart. Have you had that experience before? Seeing someone and you just take heart. I actually have that experience every Sunday coming to Pillar Church. It's quite a delight for us. Um, obviously, our son's the pastor, so that's exciting, but just coming here and seeing people whom we've come to know and love often meet in the lobby with, by, oh, I, I haven't cleared any of this with any of these people, so if you have a problem with it, please see Nancy. Um, <clears throat> we'll often see Paul Angna. Do you know Paul? Paul followed John and Kristen from Whidbey Island. He's such a dear man. If you poke him anywhere, he'll spew out a Bible verse. 
you see him, you thank God, and you take heart. But it's, it's not just Paul, it's others. We often sit down, well, actually, where Nancy's sitting right now, and usually in front of us or behind us is Janet Wisinger and her, her dear husband, whom, if you ask him how he's doing, he'll just give you a big smile and a thumbs up. Janet, whom I have known actually for decades, years and years ago when I was a very young pastor, I participated in a conference somewhere, and Janet and a friend of hers named Jane were absolutely wonderful singers, and they, they seemed to sing at every big event in the RCA. I see her, I thank God, and I take heart. But it's so many others. In just a few weeks, this whole place is going to be transformed by college kids. Hordes and hordes of college kids will come streaming up. And I love it when we do communion and you see all these kids coming up, lives just buzzing with potential. You see them, you thank God, and you take heart. Well, actually, all of this is just by way of preliminary uh, now I'm getting to my main point. Is that okay? Well, here's the main point. The main point is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. It all comes down to this verse. He lived there, and for two whole years at his own expense, he welcomed all who came, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about Jesus Christ with all boldness and, with, and without hindrance. Welcoming, teaching, proclaiming, welcoming, teaching, proclaiming. This was the DNA of the Apostle Paul, receiving all who would come, proclaiming and teaching, welcoming. Welcoming, that's not very difficult to do, really. It's just opening your heart to another receiving and welcoming, welcoming, proclaiming. Proclaiming, that gets a little more difficult. Proclaiming is what you do when you try to say to somebody else in your own words what Jesus has come to mean to you. Welcoming, proclaiming, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Actually, it's a little scary, but that's not too hard, is it? So what has Jesus done for you? Think of it. Have it on the ready. And when someone asks you, give witness to that. Welcoming, proclaiming, teaching, teaching, teaching about Jesus Christ. What else would you want to teach about? Teach about Jesus, who he is, and what he has done. I love a, a book. I brought a couple of books with me. And one of them is by Kenda Creasy Dean, she teaches uh, education at Princeton Theological Seminary. And she writes, Christian spirituality requires conversation to both claim and confess our religious identities for ourselves and others and to critically examine the role of faith in our lives. But Christian spirituality requires a particular kind of conversation that reinforces the church's unique understanding of who, Jesus, who God is in Jesus Christ. To state it bluntly, conversational Christianity requires Jesus talk, not just God talk. Welcoming, 
proclaiming, teaching, teaching that Jesus is Lord. I got a text earlier this morning <clears throat> from John. He said, uh, good morning, Dad, don't blow it. No, no, he didn't, he didn't actually say that at all. He said, good morning, Dad, I'll pray for you, you pray for me. Give them Jesus. Jesus, he proclaims Jesus. That's the whole point of the story. Proclaiming Jesus to everyone everywhere. Okay, I promised I wouldn't take long, so I will wrap this up. So I retired from the presidency on the 1st of July, um, and now I have the happy privilege of getting ready to go back to the classroom and doing what got me to the seminary in the first place, and that is teaching, preaching. But it also meant that I had to leave one office and move to another. Now I'm up on faculty row on the upper level of the atrium. It's kind of cool. We're back in a little suite. It's me and Han Luen, Concert Comline, and Ben Connor, a couple of other pillarites. They're both about 25 years younger than I am, but it's going to be a wonderful time. So in the transition from one office to another, I had to get rid of a lot of stuff. So I'm going through all kinds of papers to make sure I don't throw away the wrong thing. And I came across an old RCA publication that was telling the story of Harvey Hookstra. Do you know this name? Harvey Hookstra graduated from Western Seminary in 1947. He took his beautiful young wife, Lavina, and their one small son, went to Selly Oaks, England, where for two years he went to language school because it would be his assignment to sail to Ethiopia to make his way back into the dark rainforest to find a tribe called the Masingos. They were a warrior tribe. I could hardly believe that he would do that, but there he is, hacking his way through a jungle, camping outside of their village in hopes that just in the simple ways of meeting one another, they could become friends and friendship would be a doorway to the gospel. Washing their clothes together in the river, cooking together, all the time hoping that the worst would never happen. One night, they were trapped in their tent. It was a terrible monsoon. There was lightning cracking all over the jungle. And every time a lightning flashed, Harvey would look out and see a figure of a man standing outside his tent. He was absolutely petrified. He knew that he had to protect his family, so he got up out of the tent and fronted this huge Masingo warrior, machete at his side. He was motioning to Harvey to come with him. So believe it or not, in the middle of the night, he grabs hold of the loincloth of a Masingo warrior and follows him into the deepest part of the jungle where that warrior's daughter was lying, shaking with an enormous fever. Now, Harvey was not a medical missionary, but he did bring his medical bag with him, and he prayed, Lord, help me do something right. So he did this and he did that. He gave her some medication. The fever finally broke, and in the morning, she was well. 
And the Masingo people were absolutely thrilled. And that was the door that opened. Harvey and Levina would work among those people for three more decades before they would return to the United States. And when they left, there was a congregation of Christian believers along the Godery River Valley, numbering nearly 500 people, much larger than the average Reformed church in America. It was an amazing thing. He started portable recording ministries here, finally retired for good, and lived in Escondido, California. I would fly to the West Coast with some frequency in the last several years, and I made it my practice to uh, go in a day early so I could drive from LAX to Escondido just to see Harvey Hookstra. What a gift it was to be in his presence. On this occasion, this is maybe eight years ago, I flew in, I visited Harvey, I asked him, how can I pray for you? He said, please, Tim, pray that this uh, chest congestion clears up and my doctor gives me the permission to fly to Ethiopia for the 75th anniversary of the Odola Presbyterian Church. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but the Masingo people didn't like the name Harvey, so they changed it to Odola. And after he left, they named their church after him, Odola Presbyterian Church. So I prayed, Lord, give Harvey strength and enough to return to Ethiopia. And, and he did. He later told me that as they were landing on the airstrip that he himself had built some 50 years before, at the end of the airstrip were 20,000 Christians waiting to greet Odola, who had begun their church, welcoming, proclaiming, teaching, welcoming, proclaiming, teaching. The whole point of this is for you and me to welcome, to proclaim, and to teach that Jesus is Lord everywhere we go. You know, I love the way that John precedes the benediction on Sunday morning. Do you remember this? You are about to enter every sphere of public life. I love that. We are. In just a few moments, we're going to break out of here and enter every sphere of public life. Some of us are going to businesses. Others are going to schools. Others are going to hop on airplanes uh, to sell auto parts in Germany or something, but we're going everywhere into every sphere of public life. And as you go, it is your responsibility to welcome, to proclaim, to teach, to welcome, to proclaim, to teach. Say it with me. Welcome, proclaim, teach. Welcome, proclaim, teach. Have I made myself clear? Let's quit. Pray with me, please. Father, how kind you are to come to us in Jesus Christ and to make it so obvious by your Holy Spirit that we would want nothing more than to be your followers. 
Now we're asking that you would push us out of our comfort zones and give us the courage to welcome, to proclaim, to teach until that great day when the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the seas. To that end, we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.